Our scripture comes from the first part of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 11 of the first chapter. Hear these words this, this day. Hold these words in your energy and in your light. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the time or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive, the, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were walking, Watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud came out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven at this Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven? <laughs> Now may God grant us some understanding of these words that might puzzle us today. They might. Well, as we kind of enter into this new season, you know, I acknowledge it's not Easter anymore. We've spent a lot of time looking at the resurrection stories, but now we're really in that place that's between Easter and Pentecost, getting ready for Pentecost. We are waiting in this waiting place, it's not Pentecost yet. And I would venture that we're all waiting for something to be different. Something to change, something that will change our culture in ways that bring life and not death. I'm guessing that we're waiting there. This, the events of this last week weigh heavily on my heart, weigh heavily on my soul. I've written and rewritten this sermon. I've argued with the Spirit about how to start it. And I think I lost that battle. <laughs> and so here goes. Here is when I lay myself open to you. And I trust you with my story. And yes, I know that it's streamed. And I know that it's going to go out there. But as each of you hear this story, I trust you with it. Okay, here it is. I'm going to say it. I told Marilyn yesterday I was going to say this, and it is, I hate guns. I hate guns. I don't use the term 
hate lightly. There are a few things in this world I will tell you that I hate, but I hate guns in a very visceral way. I hate guns in a very personal way. I grew up in a family of soldiers and hunters. I'm the youngest of five and the only girl. And I can't help but think of that piece of soldiering that is a part of my history as we enter this Memorial Weekend, as we look at ways to remember. I can't help but, but, it, but think about those people. You see, my step-grandfather was a prisoner of war in the Death March of Bataan. My birth father served as a hospital medic in World War II in the Korean conflict. My brother Larry served in the army in Vietnam. My brother Earl served in the Air Force of Vietnam. My brother Rick served in the Navy kind of post-Vietnam. He wasn't old enough to be a part of Vietnam. And my brother Randy, one of the things he wanted more than anything else in the world growing up was to be a soldier. But he had some medical problems that prevented him from doing that when he was young. But later in life, he joined the National um, uh, Guard Reserves, and he served there, and he was ready to go to Af Afghanistan or anywhere else they sent him because that was in his blood. But instead of doing that, Randy was the person that parachuted into wildfires and set up the base camp. So every time they were ready to deploy him, where he had his bags packed and ready to go, a wildfire broke out and he was sent elsewhere. My stepfather, the one that you guys know I call dad, he was in the Navy back in that era around Vietnam. You see, in my blood, there's all of this soldiering and I had no desire to be a part of that. There were also hunters, hunters that were able to provide food when we were poor, living in Montana, where if it wasn't for that game, we wouldn't have eaten. So I come from that place, but I hate guns. And that comes really from two places. The first is when I was 10 years old, a blonde hair, blue eyed little girl whose birth father decided I needed to learn how to shoot a gun. So I did. And I hated every minute of it. You see, the gun that I had to learn to, to load and to clean and to use was a 30 6 This was a rifle with a kick that sent me back on that sensitive part of my anatomy every time I shot it. And if I didn't hit the target, I had to get back up and do it again. So I learned. I learned because I wanted nothing to do with that. I hate guns. 
I know that in some circumstances they're useful, but I hate guns. My story with guns doesn't end there, though. A month before my 13th birthday, my birth father committed suicide by gun. I hate guns. I think that in the wrong hands, in the wrong way, that they hurt more than they help. And I don't believe that a 17-year-old should have access to a gun of mass destruction. I don't. These are my personal beliefs. This is where I am as I'm hearing these stories this week. And I'm reminded that I hate guns. I do. And I also understand that not everybody feels the way I do. When one of my sons wanted one of those airsoft guns, you know, that were popular in a few years ago, he wanted one more than anything in the world. And, you know, I wouldn't even let him use cap guns. Or I wouldn't, you know, squirt guns were the most that my boys were able to do. And yet he wanted this thing. And I had to do some real soul searching of how, how to answer that because I can't make my feelings his feelings. So I did what some parents might not do. And that is I made him write a three-page paper complete with references on how to safely use these things. And he still talks about how mom made him do that. I also made him do a safety course at the place that sold them. I did. Because I knew that my choices couldn't be his choices and he needed to make it, made it his own choices. Just like my choices can't be your choices. You might agree with that thing with me where I say I hate guns, you might agree with that, but you might not. And that isn't for me to judge. A few years ago when I was in seminary, I took a class, a reconciliation class. And the professor, um, Dr. Laura Simmons, who is also one of my friends now that she's not my professor, um, taught me something in that class that, that I continue to hold dear today. And that is this, that often in a situation where there are two differing ideas, we can fight against those ideas or we can stand in the tension between them. In other words, I can understand that you might have a different view than I do. I can stand there, but I don't have to argue with you about it. I don't have to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. But I can stand in that tension and I can live out what I believe. I can. I can have my son write this paper and believe me, there was a lot of protest involved in that. And I'm not sure that David really believed that I was doing the right thing, but I think I did. But when we stand in the tension, we don't have to attend every argument that we're invited to. 
Because my experience is that arguing place doesn't change anything, but my actions could change everything. An example, early in the pandemic, um, I had went and visited my mom in Montana. And I went into the store there where we were all masked and we were all careful and social distanced. I went into a store in Montana and there was no one really except me masked. And I posted on Facebook how uncomfortable that made me to be there. Well, one of my acquaintance, who believes differently than I do, made this kind of derogatory comment that said to me, why would you put a diaper on your face? And I had to put my computer away. And I had to think about that. And what I decided that I didn't want to invest myself in that argument. And so what I said to him was, I will not debate with you on this. I will not. And I moved on. Because we don't have to attend every argument that's put in front of us. We don't. So I continued to wear my mask. And it wasn't long after that I had COVID. Even wearing my mask. And I continued to wear my mask, and I continued to share my story as to why I wore my mask. His question helped me to decide where I was. So as we enter into this scripture that's traditionally about the ascension, I still hold within my very being some questions that come out of this week. What do we do with all the feels, all the pain, all the grief? And I don't know about you, but I'm asking how do we make it stop? How do we stop this thing from ever happening again? How do we make this world a safe place for everyone? And I will venture that there are people on both sides of the argument about gun control that feel those things as well. But those are the questions that I'm bringing to the scripture. What do we do with all the feels? What do we do with all the grief? And how do we make it stop? And how do we make our world a better place for everyone? So as I look at how the scripture is traditionally used as kind of Ascension Sunday, let's, let's usher in the kingdom of God. Let's, let's do all the good things. Let's, let's make this a celebration. And it is, but it's also something else. You see, 
the thing that I want us to look at today is not that Jesus went up on the clouds into heaven. It's not that. It's not that everyone was happy and, and this thing happened. I want us to think about what was happening at that time with those people. You know, the, the disciples understood grief and pain. They understood persecution and tribulation. They understood all of those things. And they come to this place meeting with Jesus with all of that on their souls. Did you notice that they asked this question? Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Will this end? When will this end? The restoration of the kingdom of Israel was a big thing. It was for the persecution to stop. It was for the killings to stop. It was for all of those things that, that harmed to stop. That's how they saw the restoration of Israel. You know, they were asking questions. Will you heal? Will you make change? Will you make things better? I add, will our schools be safe? They were asking for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel because they were desperately needing something. They wanted it to be better. You know, often when we look at this scripture, we, we skip over that question and skip on to the place where Jesus says, you're going to take my message and you're going to go to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And that sounds like good marching orders. It does. But the thing is, This question is there because of what they were experiencing in their culture. I want us to pause and really hear that question. Will you restore the kingdom now? It's not a bad question. It's not a, a question that can be ignored. And Jesus answers in the way that I wonder about. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. In other words, he's telling them that they need to wait. And I don't know about you, waiting is hard. Do I want this world to change that I'm in? Do I want it to happen now? Yes. Yes, yes. But we're waiting. We're waiting for a time when kids won't be shot in schools. We're waiting for time, times when mental health is addressed and people receive the care and the needs that they, that they have. They receive that medicine, that support. And more than anything else in the world, I want love to win. 
And I'm still waiting for that to happen in a big way. But at the same time, I'm waiting for that to happen in a big way. I need to acknowledge that it happens in little ways every single day. Every single day, love wins in some ways. Love wins when we love children and we show them our love. Love wins when we feed someone who's outside here who has no food. Love wins when we open our affordable housing and we do this thing that's so huge. Love wins. When you think about it, you know, this little scene where the disciples are looking up into heaven and they're, I wonder what's going through their mind. I'm thinking, well, now what? And the, the two angelic figures come up and say, why are you looking up there? I wonder. I wonder about that. And here's where I come from. You see, I think that they were asked, why are you looking up there when you could be doing something here? Why are you looking up there when you have the power of the Spirit within you that can change your world in small ways? You know, like if you've ever done car repairs, you know that kind of flywheel thing that, that you know, it, it, it starts moving as, as each piece starts moving, that that keeps happening. I think that that's how God's kingdom appears here and now. I think that's how God's kingdom wins when each of us do our little part, whatever that may be. Not that we enter into the argument, but that we show that we don't have to argue. We show that we know how to love God's people. A few years ago, my husband and I did this study at, at Aloha Christian Church where we were serving together. And the study was, I think, a Linton study. And the study was um, the things that make for peace. And we met uh, probably six or eight weeks. I can't remember, and I can't even remember exactly what we studied. But what I do remember is that in the course of that, we had whiteboards kind of all the way around us, and we did this brainstorming thing where people could write down anything that they knew that they could do that would bring peace. No matter how small. And I don't have that list anymore. But I do know that in the course of that time, we had whiteboards all over that fellowship hall. And, and the whiteboards were filled with different colored markers of things that bring for peace. And I wonder, I wonder if our part in that flywheel of change is doing some things that bring peace to our world. You know that song, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. If you had in your power ways to bring peace, what would you do? How would you bring peace to a world torn by grief? In a world where the argument is more important than the people. 
How would you bring peace? Okay, so you have some homework. The back side of your announcement page is blank. And that's on purpose. Because as you go through this next week, as you prepare your hearts for the Pentecost, I'd like you to write down anything that comes to mind that would bring peace to our world. Anything. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too insignificant. Everything is important. The things that make for peace. And then I want you to tack it somewhere where you can see it. That you can, you can look at that. And when you're overwhelmed by the feels, when you're overwhelmed by the pain, I want you to go to that list. I want you to think if there's something on that list that you can do. Because in my world, standing in the tension isn't standing doing nothing. In my world, standing is the, in the tension is deciding what to do next. What can I do next? I'm hearing Jesus' words where he said, I've been appointed to bring good news to the poor, to preach liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go. I'm hearing Jesus saying, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom. Blessed are you who hunger, for you shall be satisfied. And let me do a side note here. We have a job in there. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall be comforted. Let those tears go. If your heart is breaking, let it break. But know that a broken heart isn't the end of the story. The vision of the kingdom coming is something Jesus proclaimed and something Jesus pointed out. The kingdom of heaven is like, you know those scriptures? kingdom of heaven is you know I think that that kingdom of heaven that idea is is a great vision of justice and peace for all people it's a vision of redemption and liberation Jesus showed us how to live that in word and deed. We come to this table for communion, and that's proclaimed here too. This is my body, given for you. This is my blood, poured out for many. It's a communion of love and hope and peace. As Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. That will is peace. That will is love. That will is light. That will is life.
And so the disciples said, when will you do this, Lord? And he said, it's not for you to know. But I wonder if we missed a part of that. Not for you to know, but what if it's for you to do? You're not going to know the time, but you should be working on that. Amazing. Amazing. The things that make for peace doesn't end everything. People will still be hungry. People will still grieve. People will still cry. Children may still die. And I really, really wish that wasn't true. However, if each of us, like that flywheel, do our part, what does that mean? I think it means a whole new kingdom, a whole new world where love wins. In the meantime, we gain comfort in the good. We pray for those who need our prayers. We begin change in our world in little ways. We enter into this violent world as a force for love. We do that. We do what we can, when we can, where we can. We feed the hungry. We, we help people get shelter. We love the children. And we love each other. And we love others. Because when they're staring up at those clouds, I kind of have to chuckle. Doesn't that seem like that's what humans would do? Hey, come back, fix this thing. And instead, they themselves are the ones that can bring about change. This is hope. And I will point out, even though it's next week's story, that we have been given a comforter. We have been given the Spirit to help us do the things because with that, spirit comes a power. And even though we celebrate it next week, we own it now. This power is power to love, the power to heal, the power to grow, the power to help each other. When I walked into this building on Tuesday morning, the banner that's over that doorway out there caught my eye. Do you know what that banner says? It's Micah 6.8. God has shown you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you 
but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. As we wait, we work for things with the Spirit as our guide, not to argue, but to bring change, to bring peace, and to bring love, so this never happens again. And with the Spirit's help, we can do that. We are in this waiting place, but it's also a place of promise. Oh, my dear friends, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? God, we are yours. Amen.